0: is memories of trauma are somehow uh, imprinted in the parents and the grandparents' sperm cells and egg cells. And then this information is passed forward to us. And then as a result, you and I and every, and everybody listening can be born with altered brains preparing us to biologically cope for traumas that are similar to the ones that our parents and grandparents had experienced.
1: Hello, beautiful people. On today's podcast, we have the lovely Mark Wallen. Mark is a world leader in the field of inherited family trauma and director of the Family Constellation Institute. He's a highly sought after lecturer, an educational and training provider in which he has just released his new training on inherited family trauma. I will leave a link below and best-selling author of the book it didn't start with you how inherited family trauma shapes who we are and how to end the cycle what i personally love about this conversation is mark's deep insight in and compassion for inherited family trauma mark shares what inherited family trauma is how it could be affecting you and how to heal your present self who may be experiencing mental health challenges that are a manifest of gene adaptation from previous generations. He shares his personal core language approach, which shows us how language and trauma intersect and how uncovering our core language can free us from reliving traumas that do not belong to us. I even share my own personal experience with Mark's work and how it provided a new perspective on some of my deepest fears that have never felt true to me and my life experience. This year, I intend to get more experts in their chosen field to come on to the To Be Human podcast. So if you have anyone you would like to see on, please contact me below. I would love to hear from you as we continue to build and evolve the To Be Human collective. And if you are enjoying this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review and enjoy this conversation with the wonderful Mark Wallen. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Mark.
0: Thank you, Jenna. I'm happy to be here.
1: So, Mark, where I want to start is with a paragraph from your book, It Didn't Start With You. What I've learned from my own experience, training, and clinical practice is that the answer may not lie within our own story as much as in the stories of our parents, grandparents, and even our great-grandparents. The latest scientific research now making headlines also tells us that the effects of trauma can pass from one generation to the next. This bequest is what's known as inherited family trauma, and emerging evidence suggests that it is a very real phenomenon. Pain does not always dissolve on its own or diminish with time. Even if the person who suffered the original trauma has died, even if his or her story lies in submerged in years of silence fragments of life experience memory and body sensation can live on as if reaching out from the past to find resolution in the minds and bodies of those living in the present
0: uh, you picked a, you picked a <laughs> heavy heavy paragraph gentlemen
1: Was it? well yeah, I, yeah, I absolutely love it um mark and and the reason why i want to start here is because the first part is what I've learned from my own experience. So uh-huh. I would love for you to share, Mark, more about your own experience, uh, particularly in relation to when you lost your vision and how coming to heal your own family relationships came to heal yourself.
0: Okay, yeah. <laughs> so like most of us, I had symptoms I couldn't explain. Mm-hmm. you know about 30 years ago. Um, I began to lose the vision in one of my eyes. And I was diagnosed with a chronic form of retinopathy. And the doctors, you know, they gave me no hope. There's no cure. In fact, it was worse than that. They said, you know, the way it's progressing in this eye, um, we think you're going to lose the vision in your other eye as well. And I was terrified. You know, here I am. I was about 31 or 2 at the time. and um i was desperate to find some help so i just started to read everything that i could and you know this was um oh boy this was before the internet um (laughs) so i'm reading books and then finding out where making phone calls back then to see where the um teacher of this book lived (laughs) um what there was a training program and a Uh, Or he was giving or she was giving a teaching. So I went on this search for healing, Jenna Louise, and it it took me literally um, halfway around the globe, literally as far as Indonesia. Um, uh, Well, for you, that's close. It is. For us, us, that's, you know, 34 hours or something. Uh, I learned from several um, very wise teachers who taught me some fundamental principles. of healing, one of which was healing my relationship with my parents, which was terribly broken. You know, I was um, broken from my mom, broken from my dad. Um, But before I could heal with them, I had to heal what stood in the way, though I didn't know it at the time, uh, it would have been inherited family trauma. Now, I I have no idea what that is at this point, but now looking back, It was the anxiety that I had inherited from my grandparents, um, who were all orphaned in some way. Three of them lost their mothers when they were babies or toddlers. And one of them lost her dad when she was a year old, 14 months old. So basically, she loses her mother, too, who's grieving. And this anxiety, um, this was the real cause of my vision loss. So just like my parents... I've inherited this feeling of being broken from a mother's love uh, because that's what would have happened for Mm -hmm. my grandmothers. And this is what's passed down in my family. I remember, um, oh boy, I'm probably five or six years old. I'm a small boy. And every time my mom would leave the house, I'd be completely panicked. And I'd run into her room and I'd pull open her drawers and I'd cry into her scarves and, and nightgowns thinking that I'd never see her again. And all I'd have left was her scent, her smell, which again would have been true for my grandparents who would have had a sweater or a house coat or a blanket with their mother's smell. 40 years later, I shared this with my mom and she told me that she had done the exact same thing. You know, she um, uh, that she had uh, cried into her mother's scarves and clothing when her mother would leave the house. And then my sister reading the book said, honey, I did that too. When mom would leave, I'd cry into her clothes. And it was the family, um, you know, the family defense, the family strategy, the family, uh, the inherited action. So after healing um, the broken bond with my mom, my vision, my sight came back. I, I didn't expect it to come back at that point. It was just sort of a gift of doing the inner work. And then after that, I felt compelled to share uh, some of the principles I'd learned and ultimately developed a method for healing the effects of inherited family trauma.
1: Incredibly powerful. I just, I love your story, Mark, so much. So let's go into inherited inherited family trauma, because obviously, you know, through that quote, I, I shared a substantial amount of sort of what it's about but kind of, I guess, in your own words in which you express now, what is inherited family trauma?
0: Okay, let's say there's a significant trauma um, that happened to our parents or our grandparents. Let's say maybe they lost their mother or their father when they were kids, when they were young, or, or our mother or father had something significant that happened to them. Maybe they were sent away or raised by a grandmother or placed in an orphanage or lost a sibling um, when they were small, you know, maybe a child got hit by a car or died terribly and the mother felt responsible and, you know, just went offline. Um, The reaction, you know, this can devastate the family. Now, as you read in my quote, the reaction to this trauma, it it doesn't necessarily stop with the people who experienced it. So the feelings, the sensations, um, uh, specifically the stress response, the way our genes express, um, the alteration of our, of our um, uh, brain, really, uh, this can pass forward to the children and the grandchildren affecting them in a similar way, even though they didn't personally experience the trauma.
1: Yeah, it's, it's- It's incredibly um, amazing. And I mean, in terms of, I obviously read your book and I've done your exercises. So I'd, I'd love to sort of further get into this, Mark, because the way in which you lead people to understand whether their current situation, their current health is being affected by past generations um, it is very powerful and you know I love even in that you know the first paragraph that I shared about you know time doesn't always heal everything and I think that's so powerful because you know within our society there's always that thing you know don't worry time will heal it time will heal it and mm. I think it's like in reading your book and understanding more about inherited family trauma it's so significant to understand that time doesn't always heal things for us so Can we start talking more about the importance of core language and kind of that starting point to start exploring how inherited family trauma may be affecting us?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things I do in the book is I teach people how to be detectives Mm -hmm. of their trauma language. And I see trauma language in two different ways, the things we say and the behaviours that we have. And we need to examine this. You know, one of the important questions That I ask in the book is, uh, and I'll ask it here, um, I'll I'll ask the reader, what's the worst thing that could happen to you if things went terribly wrong? If things suddenly fell apart, what's your worst fear? What's the worst thing that could happen to you? And, And then I say, this is before you had kids, because, you know, a parent would say something terrible would happen to my children. And that's true. But I'm asking, what's that feeling we feel like we've been born with, that feeling that we feel that's been with us for so long that we can't even separate it from ourselves? And and then people give an answer to that question. It can go in two different directions. For example, if they give an answer, I'll be left, I'll be abandoned, I'll be rejected, uh, I'll be powerless, I'll be helpless, that often goes in the direction of attachment, what a baby would feel um, when the mother's uh, stressed, otherwise engaged, disconnected. She's had trauma. The baby's had trauma. There's been an emotional or physical separation. And then there's another type of language that takes us generationally. And that type of language is, I'll do something terrible and I'll be hated. I'll harm a child. Um, I'll deserve to die. Um, I'll go crazy. I'll be locked up. Uh, I'll do something terrible. I'll be ostracized. You know, that type of language takes us into these generational um, uh, stories that we might not even remember, but the story is still living in us because the language is telling that story. For example, why would we tell the story, I'll hurt a child? And if you ask somebody, have you ever hurt a child? They'll say no, but then when you ask the question, did anyone in your family ever feel responsible for hurting a child or a child died young? And then all of a sudden, this wealth of stories will pop up, and, and you know, it's boy, I have so much to say about trauma language. So I, I've discovered that when a trauma happens, clues are left behind in the, in the form of emotionally charged words and sentences that leave this breadcrumb trail. And I talk about this breadcrumb trail in the book, but when we learn to do the inner work, we learn to follow it. Uh, It's like finding the missing piece of the puzzle that lets the whole picture come into view and can finally give us that context for why we're depressed, why we're anxious. And I I teach people in the book, it's essential to learn to hear what you say, or I ask those questions and then we write down the answers. Because if you if you look at it in terms of trauma theory, um, when, when a traumatic event happens, significant information bypasses our frontal lobes. Mm. So the experience of exactly what happens in the trauma, it can't be named or ordered through words because our language centers become compromised in a trauma. And, and so without language, our experiences get stored as Fragments of memory. Um, You even read this in the quote. Um, Fragments of body sensations, fragments of images, fragments of language, fragments of emotion. It's like the mind disperses and essential elements um, get separated. In other words, we lose the story, Jenna Louise, Mm -hmm. and we never complete the healing. Yet, what I found is the these pieces they're not lost. They've simply been rerouted. And they resurface as our verbal and our nonverbal trauma language. Let me just say two more things. If it's verbal, it's one of those sentences I gave before. Um, um, I'll, I'll, I'll harm somebody. I'll let, I'll let people down. I'll be rejected. I'll be humiliated. I'll be annihilated. You know, those types of sentences. But if it's nonverbal, um, we look for the physical and emotional symptoms that show up after, you know, something terrible that happened, some sort of unsettling event in our lives. So we might look at the fears that show up or the anxieties that strike suddenly when we reach a certain age. And often it's the same age uh, that something ha- traumatic happened to someone in our family. For example, at 30, we break up with our partner, but we never think look at what age did our parents split apart what age did grandma become a widow you know and then you start to see these trails in the family history and another thing we can look for a depression or some destructive behavior that shows up or or arises right after um, a situation that's similar to a trauma in our family history
1: i absolutely love this and i actually did that exercise mark and it was fascinating because, you know, I've done some like similar exercises to extent, you know, what is your deepest fear? Kind of, you know, what are you most afraid of type exercises before? And, you know, I'll step into the arena now in my vulnerability and kind of share, you know, for me, it's normally surrounding abandonment, a sense of abandonment. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm like very um, comfortable with that and sharing that. But what I really loved about your practice is you continue to dig deeper and deeper on that concept. And so for me, I've never done that before. So I kind of, you know, it tried exploring and expanding, and I kind of, okay, so if I had this fear of being abandoned, it kind of followed through to I have this fear of being forgotten. And then if I'm forgotten, what does that mean? I'm all alone. And, and, you know, going really into that primal state, well, if I'm all alone, then I'm afraid to die, which was really interesting. But I went back to this practice yesterday to kind of go over my notes, and I tried exploring it further, and a word came up for me that has never come up for me before. It was a very visceral feeling and attachment. And as you share, these words that have these sort of strong emotional charges are the ones that we're meant to pay attention to. And the exactly. word was, I'm afraid to be, or I feel like I will be discarded. And yeah. I was like, immediately in that moment, Mark, I knew who that was associated with. And it was yeah. for the first time in my life that I was like, fascinating, very fascinating. And, you know, I'll share my mum was adopted. And
0: oh, of course, there right, it is.
1: There it is. There, but what's, there it is. what's fascinating about it, Mark, is that, you know, we never speak about her adoption. It's just something that we don't speak about. So for me, in any time I've kind of tried exploring this, um, it's never come to sort of the forefront of my mind to be, have that conscious of awareness of why that is. And the more I sort of reflected on yesterday, Mark, I was like, it's fascinating because if anything, you know, my mother's coping mechanism is to being overly protective. Like I don't feel like she has abandoned me. And if, if anything, she has kept me you know, very safe. And what's fascinating about that is it really came to show me that, you know, it, through sort of your teachings, that like a lot of that fear of abandonment I feel now is not my own.
0: Exactly. So we, so uh, you, you said so much in there, Jenna Louise, <laughs> and and good. First of all, good work. I mean, my God, to to have the strength to do this work, to mm. dive in, to examine it to see how it resonates in our body mm. um your mom's being discarded um which was one of the words you used being abandoned another word you used um uh, you used feeling forgotten, uh,
1: feeling forgotten and feeling alone right yeah
0: so the, the oh there's so many places i want to go but <laughs> in, in, imagine your mom First of all, we'll talk about her experience epigenetically Mm. lives inside the children. Um, But first, imagine her in utero. And here she is, her mom, in a a very loving way, decides not to kill the baby, take the baby's life. She decides to let the baby incubate in her womb, and then she's going to give the baby away, which is loving on the part of the birth mother. Um, But at the same time, she's saying, I can't keep you. I can't keep you. I'm not going to let myself bond with you. I have to give you away. So all that inner experience, your mom will have this inner experience, a somatic experience, Mm -hmm. because cognitively, you know, our prefrontal cortex and our hippocampus, the connections don't connect until age two or three. So she's not going to have memories of this. But we know that attunement between mom and baby has to begin after conception. But that doesn't happen for your mother. In fact, not only is grandma, birth grandma, not attuning to your mother after conception, she's saying subliminally, um, silently in her thoughts, feelings, actions, I can't keep you. I can't Mm -hmm. keep you. I can't bond with you. And then comes the uh, the next shocker, um, giving this baby away, away from the mother's smells, sounds, rhythms, warmth, heartbeat, giving this baby away. It would create a massive, both of these, all of these experiences would create a massive break in the attachment that your mom would have. And then there'd be defenses to the break in the attachment, fight, flight, freeze, mm-hmm. going further please and appease. I mean, there's so many strategies that come out of those defenses. And then that's heritable. So the feeling of being broken from a mother's love um, or feeling abandoned, you know, you and I share that, right? I I, I was talking about uh, all my grandparents being orphans. Mm -hmm. They lost their moms and your mom loses her mom uh, through the adoption. Mm -hmm. The feeling of being abandoned, the feeling of being... um, uh, forgotten, discarded, such good work you did. And that's exactly right where it comes from. Epigenetically, it would pass through as gene expression. In other words, your, your mom's defense, her, br- the way her brain would be, uh, the molecular changes that would alter her DNA, the, the DNA expression. And that DNA expression that's been altered, that's passed forward.
1: Beautiful. I love it. So for people listening, because, you know, I wanted to share my story to kind of, you know, start sort of exploring these concepts that you you have in your book, as you kind of shared before I shared that you were talking about this core language and sort of, you know, what is your worst fear and starting to explore that. Can you share a little bit more you know, if, if people haven't read your book yet, how to sort of start leaning into that process of becoming aware of where to start working on this?
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's a really good question. So again, there are these, you know, I I think, I think what you're asking is how do I know if I'm affected by inherited Mm. family trauma? And, And I, I, Or at least that's where I'm going to go with with what you're saying, because really there are signs. Now, look, we can be born like you and I are talking about with this feeling of abandonment or being discarded or being forgotten. And these can live with us from our birth because they've been passed down. But we can so we can be born with an anxiety or a depression or a feeling like you and I just shared and never separate it from the you know, the events of the previous generation until you did that and said, my mom was adopted. Mm -hmm. Um, But we can also experience, and I said this a little bit earlier, but I want to deepen this. We can also experience a fear or a symptom that all of a sudden strikes suddenly or unexpectedly, right when we reach a certain age. And it's almost like clockwork. We hit this age and boom, we start doing the self-destructive behavior or we start having these thoughts. And often or or this, these obsessive thoughts, and often it's connected with the trauma in the previous generation, or the generation before that. But Jenna Louise, it's not just ages. Uh, For example, I found that when we reach a certain milestone, or a certain event in our lives, uh, for example, as soon as we get married, um, that can be a triggering event. In, In the book, I think you remember I talked about this Um, woman, maybe she was Iraqi or Lebanese, I forget, but she loved her husband, her fiance. She loves this guy. She thinks he's the greatest guy. She can't wait to marry him. But as soon as she marries him, she's feeling trapped and she doesn't understand it. She Mm -hmm. comes to do work with me. Look, I know he's the right guy, but I can't help feeling terribly trapped. So when we looked at her family history, we saw that both of her grandmothers were given away as child brides, one of them at nine and one of them at 12 to much older men, 30 years older, these little kids are given away to be married and that's a trauma. And the trauma, which is interesting, expressed differently in both of my client sisters, the one sister married a man, 30 years older, just like the grandmothers, and the other sister wouldn't even have a relationship because she didn't want to be trapped. So it, that's one trigger another trigger um, is uh moving to a new place and then all of a sudden suddenly we become depressed maybe like our ancestors Jenna Louise Mm -hmm. who were persecuted or they were forced out of their homeland or something terrible things happened in their homeland where there was a war so all of a sudden we move and and, and that even if we move around the corner or, or just across the city and all of a sudden we're depressed another one is we get rejected by a partner and all of a sudden we only dated this person maybe two three months but the grief is insurmountable we can't get over the grief and, and you know this happens a lot somebody will come to me and say look I I've only dated this person for a very short amount of time but I'm deep in the in in the pain uh, of like wanting to die or something like that that and it takes us back the grief is insurmountable and it takes us back to a much earlier grief or a much earlier loss maybe a break in the attachment with our mom or our mom with her mom Um, or or i'll give you another one another trigger you know everything's cool until we get pregnant, or we go to have a child, and then it's as though this ancestral alarm clock um, starts ringing, you know in our bodies. I, wa- I one time worked with this woman. Um, she was consumed with anxiety, and she had no idea why. And she was just literally shaking with anxiety. And I said, "Let's slow that down. Let's, um, how long have you had that?" And she said, "Oh, um, six or seven months, easy." I said, what happened six, seven, eight months ago? She goes, oh, I got pregnant. And I said, so it was clear it was part of the pregnancies. I said, well, well what's the worst thing that could happen with you being pregnant or having a baby? And immediately she says to me, I'll harm my baby. Mm. And I said, did you just like I was telling you before? I said, did you ever harm a baby? And she said, no, never. And then I said, did anybody else ever harm a baby he accidentally, purposely, Uh, um, an accident and she said no and then she said "Oh, oh my god my grandmother when she was a young woman and it just came to her in that minute she lit a candle it caught the curtains on fire then it caught the house on fire the baby's upstairs on the second floor she runs up but but the flames are everywhere she can't get up the steps she can't get the baby out the baby dies and then my client says but we were never allowed to talk about it right which, which we can talk about if you want to later, how that is a problem. Right. <laughs> um, but in that moment, she makes the link that she's inherited the terror of her grandmother. And then after that, we were able to break the pattern.
1: You shared the cherry blossom study, and I'd love for you to share this one because I think it's a, it's a simple study to truly yeah. understand um, the idea of sort of gene expression through generations.
0: Yeah, no, it's a good one. I think that's a good one. So Emory Medical School in Atlanta, which is a, a a very well-known medical school in the United States, did this particular study where they took male mice and they made them fear a cherry blossom-like scent. And the way they made them do this is every time the mice would smell the scent, they'd shock the mice. And then they would... Um, Unfortunately, uh, look at the changes in the mice's blood and brain and sperm. And so what they could see is right with those mice that were shocked in that first generation, the brain, in the brain, there were enlarged areas that got developed where there was a greater amount of smell receptors so that the mice could smell the scent, detect the scent, at lesser concentrations. And if you think about it, it's genius. It's an
1: yeah.
0: epigenetic adaptation to protect the mice. So that makes their smelling more keen so they don't get shocked, right? Well, um, so the brains had epigenetically adapted to protect them. Now, the researchers had this idea well, what would happen if we take some of the sperm from these shocked mice that have these enlarged brains and we impregnate? female mice that were not shocked and then look at the progeny, look at the offspring. And, and so that's what they did. And the amazing part of the study is what happened in the second and third generations. The pups and the grand pups became jumpy and jittery mm-hmm. just by smelling the smell, not being shocked just by smelling the smell. So they had inherited the stress response without directly experiencing the trauma. Um, while you've got me on, the st- uh, on mice, I think I wanna say, tell another one, which is so interesting uh, because it relates to what you and I've been sharing um, in this talk so far. One of the most common studies, one of the most replicated studies that they've done with baby mice is they've separated them from their mothers and even for a short period of time. And then they, they've seen the effects can be observed for three generations. There's this one study I mentioned in the book where the researchers, they prevented the, the females from nurturing the pups for a short time, just three hours a day for the first two weeks of life. That, that's it, Jenna Louise, that little bit. And then they look later and later in life Their offspring and their children's offspring exhibited behaviors similar to what we call depression Mm -hmm. in humans. Uh, The symptoms even worsened as the mice aged, and then surprisingly, um, some of the uh, some of some of the males did not epigenetically express the behaviors themselves, but appeared to epigenetically transmit these behavioral changes to their female offspring which was that'd be like fathers going off to war and they're and they're uh you know coming back numb um uh depressed and and their daughters carrying their father's fight flight or freeze response his shaking his terror his shutdown but it, but it isn't just fathers and daughters it's um uh Male children and female children can carry a mother or a father's trauma. Um, You know, I think the, the, the best way for me to sort of explain this in an overarching way is memories of trauma are somehow imprinted in the parents and the grandparents' sperm cells and egg cells. And then this information is passed forward to us. And then as a result, you and I and every and everybody listening can be born with altered brains preparing us to biologically cope for traumas that are similar to the ones that our parents and grandparents had experienced.
1: Yeah, I'd love to explore this deeper with you, Mark, um, because this, this was a big one for me. I remember in your book, someone had shared, you know, I would prefer to be the offspring of, you know, if, if, I am, if I am in a war, I would prefer to be the offspring of someone that has experienced war before rather than someone that hasn't fought. And it really got me thinking in terms of like trying to understand more the purpose of these gene adaptations. So could you share a little bit more of, because I shoot, you know, when it comes to trauma, a lot of us can feel, okay, like, there's a lot of suffering that comes with trauma. But obviously, you know, it is our body's way through evolution and survival that it actually has the purpose of keeping us surviving. So there is a positive that comes from it, but obviously when we're experiencing these traumas, it's hard to understand. So could you elaborate a bit more on that,
0: Yeah, Yeah, many positives, including um, a study out of Australia that shows that uh, people who healed from PTSD had post-traumatic resilience. Mm. And that comes right out of Australia. Wow. So, um, and a recent study too. Now you brought up the grandparents, you brought up war. And I think that's, I think that's good. So look, I'll, I'll explain it this way. If our parent, if our grandparents came from a war torn country mm. and people are being shot and uh, bombs are going off and, And and bullets are being fired and people are being lined up in the square and people are being taken away and, you know, terrible things are happening. Our grandparents could develop and pass forward a skill set. They would develop this this alteration, a skill set. and It could be something as simple as sharper reflexes or quicker reaction times, reactions to the violence to help them survive this trauma that they just experienced. Well, they're also passing that down. So the problem is here we are inheriting their stress response um, with with the dials maybe set to 10. And here we are feeling like a war is going to break out every minute. And We live in a safe environment, um, but we've inherited their war adaptations, their stress response. And we're waiting for this catastrophe and it never arrives. And we don't make the link that our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our depression is connected to our grandparents. We, we just think we're wired this way.
1: And in your book, uh, Rachel Yehuda shared, you can't change your DNA, but if you can change the way your DNA functions, that's sort of the same thing. So I'd yes. love to move into the space, Mark, of, of coming to understand, okay, we understand that there is a possibility that our life experience, our daily experience is associated with inherited family trauma. What do we do now about it?
0: Yep. Okay. So that's a really good question. So, and, and I'm going to go back to mice for this one
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, because, you know, they've been able to reverse trauma symptoms in mice. And, and this is really exciting. So for me, um, a little bit of a science nerd, this is really exciting news because they find that when you take the traumatized mice, even, even the one, remember the ones we talked about that were taught to fear the scent?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Well, they taught them not to fear it by repeatedly exposing them to it and then not chonking them. And the mice no longer showed the heightened sensitivity to the scent and, that, and their sperm lost the fearful epigenetic signature that would pass down to future generations. So basically, um, when traumatized mice are exposed to positive experiences, um, it can change the way our DNA expresses. Um, technically, it inhibits the enzymes that cause DNA methylation or histone modifications, which are two of the means of transfer, two two mechanisms of epigenetic transgenerational epigenetic inheritance. Now. What am I saying? I'm saying that we've got to have, you know, mice aren't the only ones that benefit from these positive experience. Obviously, it's humans do too. And we've got to have positive experiences that calm our brain's stress response, mm-hmm. whether we've inherited that stress response or the trauma happened to us early in our lives. So I want to say it again. So you and I and the listeners, we've got to have positive experiences that could change our brains. And then we've got to practice the the new feelings and the new sensations associated with these positive experiences. And then when we do this, um, we not only create new neural pathways in our brains, we also stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters um, in our brain like... um, serotonin, uh, dopamine, GABA. We also stimulate the release of feel-good hormones in our body, like estrogen or oxytocin. Um, And we can even change, as I just said, um, how our genes um, express what Rachel Yehuda was saying. The, The very genes involved in the body's stress response can begin to function in an improved way. We can change the way our DNA expresses.
1: So in terms of positive experiences, just to give a bit more of a sort of clear picture for the listeners, what are some of these positive experiences yeah, that people a really can lead question. to? Really good
0: question. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you know in the book I teach people how to receive comfort and support mm-hmm. where, where there was none, you know, in their family. Um, but also I teach how to have feelings of compassion for what our parents or grandparents went through or even what we went through as a small child um, we, or to have a gratitude practice or a generosity practice or a loving kindness practice doing something kind for some someone every day or practicing mindfulness ultimately anything that allows us to feel strength or, or peace or joy inside because these types of feel, feelings these types of um, experiences, they feed the prefrontal cortex, and that can help us reframe the stress response. So it is a chance to calm down. Uh, So our limbic system has a chance to downregulate. And then if you add that, a sense of wonder, curiosity, awe, these are also feeling states that um, feed the prefrontal cortex. The idea is to pull energy away from our limbic system, our overactive amygdala, um, and bring engagement to our forebrains, specifically the prefrontal cortex, where we can integrate these new positive experiences and our brains can change. Look, we know from the mindfulness studies that um, practicing mindfulness actually shrinks our amygdala sometimes our amygdala can be twice its normal size you know just and always activated and mindfulness also thickens the prefrontal cortex so uh, basically to, to put it in a nutshell i would say we need to practice being with first the uncomfortable sensations in our body just just like you did when you said i'll be discarded oh my god that's a feeling in my body, I could feel that, or I'll be forgotten. So first, we have to come into contact with what's uncomfortable in our body, until we reach what's beneath it. Um, Sensations that are, uh, that we experience as life-giving, sensations like pulsing, I can feel the pulsing of my blood, or tingling, I can feel the tingling of particles of energy in my body, or I can feel a softening or an expanding or my blood flowing, or, or when I really get into a deep meditation, I can feel waves of energy or warmth coming up from my lower body to my upper body. And then we need to be able to hold these sensations for at least a minute, General Louise, mm-hmm. at least a minute, and then do it six times a day. So, you know, I tell people minimally, practice feeling that good sensation um, for at least a minute and do it six times a day. That can be enough to change the brain and to calm our stress response.
1: And I think it's really important to highlight, and you shared in terms of pain, a lot of us can have so much resistance to really leaning into this pain. A lot of this pain is suppressed. And as we begin to explore A lot of us can push it back down or at least try. And in your book, you said, there's often sadness hibernating beneath your angry words. The sadness won't kill you. The anger actually might. And Uh. I just, I loved that sentence, Mark, because it really got me thinking about how these, you know, bigger emotions can truly affect our life and our health and our vitality. Can you share more about, you know, the importance of really leaning into these, you know, more quote-unquote painful emotions and, you know, the things that we can maybe expect from, expect of, but be able to still move through it?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I love that, which you chose to share because, you know, the anger is a secondary emotion. Mm
1: -hmm. It's not
0: the first thing we felt. The first thing we felt was loss or grief or sadness. Um, something taken away and then our response is to get angry or rageful or judgmental or frustrated or you know and those are secondary they won't heal us many of us get caught in the secondary emotions when we actually need to go to the primary emotions um, just like you said sadness loss um what what my body is feeling like oh like the. A sucker punch when I f- feel that feeling or or I find my body folding forward and I find my shoulders wanting to guard my heart because I'm afraid of being hurt and, and I'm feeling so sad that my mom couldn't see me or my dad left. You, you get where I'm going, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's to sit with the primary feelings, the ones that will heal us, the ones that if we take deeply enough, we can get to a good place.
1: And in terms of sort of expanding that healing, particularly I think with our primary relationships with our caregivers, there can be a lot of pain within that. And can you share more about that practice of bringing compassion in? I know in your book you share various examples of how to best sort of start moving into developing a better relationship with these caregivers, which I'd also like to highlight, which I think is important, even if someone that you don't necessarily have a, you know, quote unquote healthy relationship with now has passed, there are still ways in which we can develop that relationship and heal that relationship with them now.
0: Yeah. You know, um, it's really important. We don't get caught in the story that we have Mm -hmm. um, about our parents And, and that, you know, my mom was cruel, my dad was abusive. Because again, even words like that keep us caught in the secondary emotions. Um, It's really important that we get in touch with the the truth about our parents. You know, they could do some things and they couldn't do other things. So healing with our parents means that we um, were... We're aware of um, what they could give us, as well as what they could not give us, and and that that's so important because a lot of us get locked up and and stuck in um, things that we feel they've done, which have spoiled our lives, and that just continues on and on. Um, yeah, it's 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 just essential to try to make peace with our parents now. Um, A lot of people can't do that because the the pain they feel is so present for them that they haven't done the work yet to get deep to it, to find the compassion for what their parents went through. So one of the things I teach people to do in the book is to look beyond um, your mom's cruelty or your dad's abusive words and see what made them um, hurtful. What what happened um, that made your dad hurtful, that made your mom hurtful? And often it's something that happened when they were small or they didn't get enough from their parents. And then when we can do that, we can begin to develop uh, an understanding. And an understanding leads to compassion. And just like I said earlier, compassion is one of the brain states, it's one of the feeling states that it takes us into a healing state because it um allows us to heal. Compassion is where we want to go. Uh, we don't want to stay stuck in the story.
1: I absolutely love this one. And, you know, obviously, the podcast is called To Be Human. And I think that's certainly something that I am exploring is just as much as possible, just continue to humanize people and to understand that people are doing the best that they can with the resources they have at the time and to really lean into that understanding. And I think, you know, it's important to heal our relationships, not only for the relationship itself, but, you know, sort of going full circle to what we shared at the start, these feelings that we hold on to can manifest in illness. So it's important to do it For us as well and moving forward. In terms of parenting, because I assume, you know, I'm not a parent, but I can assume when people start learning about inherited family trauma for people that have children now, and this is a new concept, I can only assume they're kind of reflecting on, okay, like how have I been as a parent? How am I best a parent? Can you sort of talk more about the importance of attunement and sort of how to really lean into providing a great experience for their children and sort of moving forward in terms of that uh, transformed yeah. gene expression?
0: Yeah. So, so it's important first to look at the events that affect um, attachment, the effects, mm. the, the events that break our bond with our mom, Many of us don't even consider that these can have an effect. But, you know, on my website, I give these questions out. You know, what happened when we were in the womb? What were the events in utero? Um, Did a baby uh, die before us, miscarried or stillborn? So mom was thinking, oh, my God, I don't feel her kicking. What if this baby dies too? These events can break attachment. What if our mom wasn't going to keep us initially? And for the first month or two, she considered um, uh, aborting the baby and uh, we could feel that disconnect in utero, or maybe our parents were fighting or separating or, or someone was drinking or someone was cheating or dad was an alcoholic. These have effect on how much our moms feels free to give the child what the child needs. So I think we need to understand that we're, we're looking at early events that break attachment mm-hmm. and also maybe broke the attachment with our children. Um, I, I'm a big proponent of mums being supported, um, uh, but moms don't always feel supported. They mm-hmm. can't give their babies the best of what their babies need. For example, what if our mom didn't love our dad? And she felt trapped. what if they were worried about money? What if they didn't have a home uh, what if what if something terrible happened in utero Mum's dad died mum's mom died, her brother died or, you know maybe there's a war going on. All of this translates into cortisol, right. which streams through the system and can cause a break in the attachment because it's caustic to the baby. Um, we know that Uh, after 20 days in utero, our heart is developed. And we know also that our neural tube and our neural groove, that which will become our nervous system, is developed. So I just want to stress, first of all, that attunement, because you ask about parenting, has to begin in utero. Um, uh, Mothers have to feel supported so they can support their babies. And then we have to go beyond in utero. Then we have to look at events during birth and labor and delivery and infancy and childhood. And um, uh, what was going on with um, uh, us as we were being born, were we taken away, were we put in a nursery, were we put in an incubator, were we premature, Um, were we taken with forceps, were we taken C-section? You know, these events can have have an effect or maybe as a little baby, our parents were already separated and we're going back to mums and back back to dads. These separations when it's too early to be away from the mother. Um, again and again, uh, we need to recognize what breaks parenting, what breaks the attachment. Now, in answer to your question, um, uh, how, how can we support our children? Um, We can heal these breaks in the bond with our children um, by hugging them, by holding them, by even saying things like, you know, when you were little, mommy wasn't always here, but I'm here now and I've got you and I'm holding you. And, uh, you know, another thing, oh boy, this is opening so many (laughs) conversations for me. My head is spinning. Um, You know, a mom basically installs the core In a baby, she she installs the well-being in a baby through her bonding and her mirroring. So, for example, a little baby, um, a a year old, the mother's attunement is so keen that she installs this sense of well-being in the baby by saying things like, there you are. Oh, I see you. Oh, you're so precious. Oh, you're smiling. You love when I look at you. Look at you smile. Oh, oh, you're sad. I can see you're about to cry. You know, in other words, so the baby gets this sense of being known. Mm. The baby gets this sense of being seen. The baby gets this feeling in the body, this inner feeling of me known, Mm. me seen, (laughs) me loved, me good. You know, in other words, the the mothers installing the sense of well-being in sometimes that can't happen because there's drinking there's separating there's fighting and there's so many breaks to that installation of the well-being that developing of the core that neuro that important neurodevelopment development that um, uh, we we a mom has to do it later so here here we are now we're uh, 30. <laughs> Our mother right. explains to us, look, when you were little, um, this happened. And I noticed that uh, I noticed that you threw your blankie out of the crib, your little blanket out of the crib at that point. And I noticed that that's when you started playing with your toys, and you didn't want to be held anymore. So it's important to know what happened. I'm always a Um, proponent of of telling kids what happened so that the kids have a coat, a a hook on which to hang the coat of what they've been carrying. Because, you know, we often don't know what happened because um, our parents keep it secret. So, uh, man, this is such a large question. We could have done a whole podcast on parenting. (laughs) But one of the things I would say to do is that, you know, tell your children um, what happened when they were small. Um, The more a child knows, um, especially if this child's struggling with unexplained symptoms, depression, anxiety, OCD, phobias, destructive behaviors, um, you know, it's important that we shake the family tree and see what falls out, do the work. Um, What family secrets, um, you know, were hidden? Uh, What stories never got told? Uh, What traumas never healed all the way? It's important we do that work for ourselves and then tell our kids what happened. Um, uh, The more we talk about these things, the more we bring relief to our children and to their children that could be suffering with, with, without a clue as to why they're suffering. You know, I found that if we ignore the past, it comes back to haunt us, but um, uh, when we explore it, we don't have to repeat it. We can break these patterns.
1: And in doing such profound and deep work with many people, what do you find is the biggest reward that people get out of doing this work?
0: Will they confront uh, what's difficult and they become, you know, like your podcast? They become more human, Mm. they become more authentic, Um, really, which is uh, for me how we become human is we have to um, be willing to examine the defenses that we have in our body, Um, the strategies that keep us rooted in. In a false self. Um, you know, I like to explain to people that often the first half of our life is um, our, our authentic self is hidden. It's masked by career drives, hormonal drives, drives to make money, drives to be successful, drives to have children. But then in the second half of life, starting at, you know, 35, 40, you know these drives be begin to receive, our hormones begin to receive. And then often something surprising um, happens that makes us real. It makes us human. We lose our job. we We lose our partner. Uh, we lose uh, we lose our money. we lose our health. Maybe we start to experience an autoimmune condition or chronic illness. We enter what I like to call and what you know Joseph Campbell would call the dark night of the soul, mm-hmm. which is needed to um, go through these difficult phases, um, because it's these this dark night of the soul that makes us equal to everyone else who suffered, and in that feeling, um, and because of that, we we become more compassionate, um, we become more kind kind to ourselves, compassionate to ourselves, compassionate to others, kind to ourselves, because we begin to set healthy boundaries. And this gives us more space inside uh, for ourselves and for others when we set these healthy boundaries. And this makes us more human. It gives us a space to be more human, more authentic.
1: Beautiful. Well, thank you, Mark, for this wonderful conversation. I've truly enjoyed it so much. And I've I've learned a lot and it's obviously impacted my life deeply. So thank you for being so generous with your time and through your lessons.
0: Oh, you're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Glad to.
1: So on a final note, Mark, I would love to ask you, what does it mean to you to be human?
0: Oh, well, I just answered it. You
1: did, didn't you? <laughs>
0: I sure you did. You <laughs> went there. I went I, there. I feared you'd probably ask me <laughs> something. Like, but really, it's to just in, examine our defenses. And, you know, to f- always, I'm looking uh, for um, why did I react that way? Why did I, what's going on in my body? That just happened. And um, let me go there and see where that's taking me. Be willing to examine our defenses and strategies, because that's that's the only way to become human. Mm -hmm. So we're not presenting the world with this false, the ego, the false personality, the false self. Um, We're really contacting the world with our soul rather than our personality. That makes sense.
1: It's beautiful. Thank you.